It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. You've probably seen a lot of the hubbub as mainstream media has done their best to spoon-feed news of uh, Caitlyn Jenner, also known as Bruce Jenner, making the debut on Vanity Fair cover, posing as a transgender woman in lingerie. It's the first we've seen of Jenner in his new gender since the former Olympic athlete announced plans to transition to life as a woman at the age of 65. And for many of us, a reminder of... Well, just the confused and changing society in which we live. A nation that, for those of us that perhaps are over over 50, wonder what's happened to our country. And uh, wanting to, at one level, engage in the fight to make America a Christian nation again. And yet, on the other hand, maybe being compelled to ask an even more important question. And that is, how can we, right where we live and work and play and engage do a better job of engaging the culture all around us. There was a time and an age when you had to get on an airplane with a passport and travel to another part of the world to engage in the mission field. And today, the mission field is literally right out your front door, almost anywhere you live in America, and certainly anywhere in the San Francisco Bay Area. So what of this idea of living missionally right where you live today? Well, we've invited... Jim Ramsey, the Vice President of Mission Ministries at the Mission Society, to join us with some insights uh, to that very question. And Jim, a delight to have you on the program. It's good to be here. First, I'm curious about your own journey. You left high-tech for the mission field. I understand you and your family spent uh, 10 years as missionaries in Kazakhstan, and that's uh, that's quite a transition. Yes, it was. Um, we we felt called to mission from from an earlier age, but it wasn't like a, a major, you know, sudden surprise to us. We always knew we wanted to serve, but the Lord had provided the IT work as something I could do while I was preparing, working through seminary, and we were starting our family. But it was a change. We uh, were in our early thirties when we when we moved from uh, small town Kentucky to a city in Central Asia, in the country of Kazakhstan and served there for 10 years. And, of course, now you're here uh, back in the U.S. and serving as vice president of uh, Mission Ministries with the Mission Society, as we mentioned. And uh, your your background, I think, as a missionary qualifies you in many ways, uh, Jim, uniquely to help us better understand and address this question, because, as I suggested, it wasn't that many generations ago when engaging in missions work to other people and cultures and society in places that were very different of us meant getting a passport, hopping on an airplane, and heading overseas. And today, that largely means getting up and going to work in the morning, doesn't it? No doubt. I think that, uh, that missions has really become from everywhere to everywhere and that people can, can be involved in mission wherever they are. And I think uh, in some ways that's a positive. We still will always be people who will get on a plane and go because uh, there's some places in the world that will never hear the gospel if somebody doesn't do that because there's nobody around. But having said that, uh, we all know I, I think you have to be in a cocoon uh, to not realize there are incredible needs and opportunities for sharing the gospel here in our own home country. 
Let's talk about attitudes concerning that very issue. I mean, there is a certain notion that believers have that we, we should live in such a fashion as we, we share our faith, we share the evangel or the, or the gospel with others. Uh, and yet, at least through the decade of the, the 80s and 90s, and, and maybe even to a certain degree today, um, a lot of uh, Christians um, do a good job at expressing our frustration over what we see going on in our culture and society today. You witnessed the news story that I shared uh, at the top of the segment here. Uh, and we do a good job at that, and yet um, maybe our experience or our, our capacity to share our frustration is better honed than our capacity to actually share our faith. And again, at the end of the day, the question is, which of the two will have the greater impact on society around us, sharing our frustration or sharing our faith? I think you really hit on the, the crucial issue that I think the American church and the evangelical church in particular really is facing. I shared a story uh, in an article I wrote recently that, that really points this out. It was some years ago. We were still in Kazakhstan serving, and I had a, a friend who was on the faculty of a, of a small liberal arts college in the East here. And it was a college with a great Christian tradition, but like so many colleges, it had kind of wandered from that tradition in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he asked this question. I mean, they were about to engage some policies that were, were clearly in opposition to the biblical understanding of the faith. And, uh, and he was kind of fighting the policies and just getting really frustrated and, and feeling like he was fighting a losing battle. And he asked me this question. He said, I'm wondering if, if my mistake is trying to maintain the Christian identity of this institution, or should I learn what is it to live missionally in a non-Christian institution? And he was talking to me because as a missionary, he said, maybe I should have more of the thought of a missionary who doesn't expect the host culture to be Christian than to kind of try to fight for that. And I think that's the, the key question that, that we are faced as believers in this culture is, is which are we going to fight to, to maintain the culture? Or are we going to live missionally to invite people into a different uh, way of living? Well, certainly the mentality for many, many years, and we've seen this articulated at, at a national level, I mean, historically by the likes of, of a Jerry Falwell or the likes of a Pat Robertson and others, and that is that we there's a degree to which we have to fight to maintain the culture. Certainly that notion of being um, salt and light uh, makes sense at a degree, but I wonder if there's also a great degree, Jim, to which we kind of longingly look back toward a different time in America where we perceived it to be a Christian nation when, in fact, that's never really been entirely an, an accurate moniker for our country. And so it's almost as if we're, we're fighting to maintain something that in the truest form never really truly existed in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I have to ask that question. I know it, it's, it's not always popular to, to question that, but you think about that we sometimes do pine for the great years in the 50s when we were a Christian country, and yet if you look at some of the things that were in place and the rules, some of the treatment of people in our country in the 1950s, I think all would agree it was far from Christian, um, especially we look at some of the, the racial issues going on in our country at the time. So I think we, we sometimes have some selective memory. I, I don't mean to imply, therefore, there have been huge challenges, and certainly the, the Christian faith has fallen out of favor with the dominant culture. Uh, but I think sometimes in our, in our memory, or our, our selective memory, uh, we kind of pine for the yesteryear, and I, I really question, is that, is that what God would have us do, or is he looking for us to forge what does it look like to be a Christian in 
today's context rather than trying to recreate yesterday's context. And is that maybe because it's just easier to fall back to that position? There's a lot less uh, demanded of us in doing so. I mean, let's face it, we'll, we'll talk to any generation and talk about the good old days and say, well, the, the good old days. Are we talking about the good old days of the Cold War in the 1980s? Would that be the good old days of the Vietnam War in the 1970s? Would be the good old days of, of uh, the, the spread of communism and, and enslaving the people throughout Europe in the 1950s? The good old days of, of the 1940s during the Second World War? Which phase of the good old days are we referring to? So it, it seems as if you're right. It's not only very selective memory, but sometimes maybe just simply an easier way to kind of default back to, because if mm-hmm. we can just um, vent our frustration over how things have changed, it really doesn't call upon us then to be engaged in the culture, to challenge the culture, to love the culture, to live, as you suggest, in a missional fashion, which means to understand that first and foremost, it is our job to be Christ's representatives on earth. And let's face it, there's a lot more work involved in doing that than just sitting back and complaining. I think so, and, and uh, one of my colleagues, Stan Self, uh, wrote recently, and I, I love this quote, he says, when we as evangelicals are so disheartened over the state of the Church in America, what are we bemoaning? Do we mourn the loss of Orthodox gospel preaching, or do we mourn the loss of our privileged place in society? Mm. And I think that's, that's a hard question, but I think we need to ask honestly, what, what are we upset about? Um, are we really upset about the truth teaches of Christianity and the transformation that the gospel brings, or are we frustrated because the the kind of position of being the dominant um, the dominant understanding of the culture that being Christian was a culturally good and acceptable thing is that is that really what we're we're losing? That that means there's a higher cost of the faith than maybe we we did sense thirty or forty years ago. Yeah, probably very true. And along with that, I think, uh, coincides this notion that, let's face it, missional living in a very unchristian or hostile environment, uh, and, and certainly Christians in China understand this, Christians in the Sudan, as we speak, understand what this is like, it comes at a higher cost. And so you're right. The question is, when we talk about paying the price, is the paying the price because we're being inconvenienced, or do we understand that our very faith itself requires us to pay a price, that there is a price? for being counted amongst those that name Jesus as Lord and Savior. So maybe it's a good point for us to pause and engage in some introspection. You know, I use the Bruce Jenner story as kind of a jumping-off point because everybody's been talking about it around the water cooler over the last 24 hours, and many bemoaning this, this direction in which society seems to be headed, and yet There is a bigger question here that remains unanswered for believers, and that is, um, do we long for the days of the Christian culture, or are we willing to influence the world around us uh, to understand what it really means to live out our faith missionally in a non-Christian environment? Our conversation today with Jim Ramsey, Vice President of Mission Ministries. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And our conversations with Jim Ramsey, Vice President of Mission Ministries at the Mission Society, we're talking about the challenges of living a missional life in modern-day America today. And, uh, Jim, certainly we've seen historically an effort in, in trying to sort of uh, preserve uh, what 
America used to look like by means of changing laws in our country, certainly electing the right guy or gal to public office. And yet, in spite of those efforts that began in earnest in the 1970s and to a lesser degree, perhaps continue to this very day, uh, maybe we've slowed the demise towards uh, apostasy down, but certainly haven't prevented it or stopped it from happening, which maybe uh, maybe ought to call into question some of the methodology that we have used as believers uh, to to change society around us. And let me quickly add, I'm, I'm not suggesting here that we shouldn't try to be salt and light. We absolutely have, I believe, an obligation to do that. But at the core, if you want to change things, it really has to begin with changing the heart, doesn't it? I think so, and I and I would agree with with what you the kind of the caveat you said there is. I'm I'm certainly an advocate of Christians being involved in the public square. I think that that for us to isolate ourselves and say, well, you know, the whole country's going to going to pot, and we're just going to do individual evangelism and not care about who's elected, not care about what the issues are in our local in our local governments, our state governments, our federal government. I think that would be a big mistake. I think some of the question to me is the tone. Of, of the debate, I think sometimes evangelicals in these in these larger kind of culture wars, even the word culture war says something about about the approach. The, the tone is is very antagonistic. It, it's it's not attractive at all, and so really the only people that energize us are people who think like me. But it's not it's not going to be something that's going to make someone who who doesn't have faith really be interested in faith. And so I think we have to recognize that it's it's our lives and our our tone uh, that really is going to make a difference. And, and as you said, that's going to happen at the relational level. Uh, now, let, let's put this in context. And again, your background as uh, having spent uh, the better part of a decade as a missionary in Kazakhstan, I think uniquely qualifies you to, to speak to this point. When, when you travel there with your family as a missionary, you're going into a country that had been under the cloak of communism for many, many years. And so there's a good percentage of people that live in the country that, that were good students of Marx and Lenin who were atheists. You have a nation that is 60, maybe 70 percent Islamic, a good percentage, probably 20, 25 percent Russian Orthodox. And into that environment, you can you can certainly walk in and say, well, gee, you people don't think as I do. You don't believe as I do. What's the matter with you? Get your rack together. I would suspect, though, that would not make you very effective as a missionary. So what are the lessons that you learned going into Kazakh society Jim, that that you can maybe help us better understand what we as believers in America need to do in dealing with a different kind of culture and society in which we live today. That that equally we we it, it's foreign to us to be sure, and yet as in need of the good news of the gospel of our Savior in America today, as as it was when you served in Kazakhstan. Yeah, I, that's that's the the key. Is that when we went to Kazakhstan, we expected a different culture. We didn't expect the host culture to behave as Christians. We we figured there was going to be good people, obviously, and there'd be good people in government, everything. But but there's, there was no expectation that the host, the dominant culture, the government systems were going to be supportive of of the gospel. And so, by losing that expectation, we weren't there to fight that battle. But we were there, as you said earlier, to win the hearts and and, and minds of people by living among them, by getting to know them, by being in discipling relationships and planting the, the community of faith there. And, and I, think, I think the community of faith, when people are living in faith in community, studying the Word and praying together and loving one another, it's extremely subversive. Uh, it, it really begins to change the culture from within, uh, as those people, as you said, become salt and light. But when we, we come at the culture in attack mode, 
then anytime you go in attack mode, people go in defensive position, and that's that's not going to be as appealing. So we the, the difference is we at the Kazakhstan we knew that we expected that somehow because America has we we got the understanding of the so-called Christian nation, we don't expect that here, and we get offended when we come up against a hostile government, a hostile host culture, rather than just saying that's the way it is. So like that's one thing we can learn from people, either missionaries or national believers, who have lived in contexts where there is not where Christianity is not the dominant, the dominant culture. You use two words that are maybe key to this. You use the phrase discipling relationships. It's easy for us to enter into an environment that is not one that we believe is necessarily biblically based in nature and to launch into attack mode, meaning you shouldn't be going to mosque, you should be attending church with me on Sunday, etc., etc. I would imagine had that been your approach out the gate in Kazakhstan, you would not have been very successful at, at, at changing hearts and minds, but engaging in... My visa would not have been renewed. I would imagine so. But but engaging in discipling relationships, that also means that you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and be in contact with people at a level in which you're able to speak truth into their life. And that really means gaining their trust, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think that's, that's the key, is, is gaining trust, putting ourselves intentionally in communities with people who are different than us. And that... Is, has not been traditionally part of the evangelical culture so much within America. We're good at that as missionaries, but our own culture here, I, I heard somebody once say, you know, take the cell phone test, um, look through your cell phone contact list, how many of those are not believers? Um, um, and so I think we we don't sometimes, but by putting ourselves intensely in community with people where we're just sharing life with them, as you said, that, that gains the, the trust and the relationship, but then we can begin to share who we are in Christ, and, and that's that really is the making fishers of men that uh, Jesus invited his disciples to. So if we want to effectively influence the culture around us, not only from the salt and preservative standpoint, but, but ultimately from the evangelical standpoint in, in winning people for Christ and growing the church, then it sounds like you're suggesting, Jim, that we need to kind of take on the same mentality that the missionary does as he or she is preparing to go overseas, meaning that you know that you're going into an environment that may be hostile in some ways toward your belief system and the way you worship and the way you think and the way you behave, maybe not understanding of many of those values and approaches, and yet you are going into their environment where they are the dominant language, the dominant culture. And so typically a missionary takes time to, at the very least, understand the culture, maybe even take time to understand the language. Certainly if you're going to live amongst them, that's that's critically important. And then you, you learn how to engage people from where they're at. That doesn't mean that you embrace what they think or do. That doesn't mean that to, to reach a Muslim you become one. But it does, though, mean that you have to be, what, a little bit more open understanding in order to, to, to gain permission to speak truth into their life? I, I think that's exactly right. I think that's, that's the key is, is taking your time, listening, learning, genuinely respecting, desiring to know people. You, nobody wants to be a target. <laughs> So if you say, you know, this person is a target of my evangelism, that, that basically takes away the relationship, and you never saw Christ do that. Christ always, the person in front of him was the, had the full, his full attention at the moment. And I think we sometimes lose track of that when, when we think that these are, these are people who need to be objects of our evangelism rather than, than 
than uh, people who we are seeking relationship with, learning God together, and then trusting, if we really believe the gospel is truth, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts, then we can kind of chill out <laughs> and just be in the relationship and, and let, let God do his work through us. Jim, I'm fascinated by this. Can you stay with us for one more segment? Sure. Uh, just stand by for a minute. We're going to come back right after a quick time out here. I want to get updated on some traffic before we get to too far afield. We've got Jim Ramsey with us, Vice President of Mission Ministries for the Mission Society. He spent 10 years with his family in Kazakhstan as a missionary and now is back here in the States, as we mentioned, um, uh, serving as Vice President of Mission Ministries for the Mission Society. And uh, he's written a recent article that caught my attention because it, I think, really calls into question uh, the way we live out our faith here in America, all of us know, you've read the headlines, you hear the stories, we know that the culture and the society in which we live is changing and continues to change. And let's face it, a lot of this is not a march uh, back toward historical Christian and biblical values, but quite frankly, uh, in just the opposite direction. And yet we see ourselves in the middle of a culture war, and we think that means we need to pick up our guns and start fighting the enemy. Uh, but, But who is the enemy here? And are they people that are, you know, again, notches on the holster? Oh, we won one more? Is that what we were? They're, they're on a list, as Jim suggests? Or is it a matter of learning how to live out our faith missionally in an ever-increasing hostile non-Christian environment, in sort of that post-Christian environment that Francis Schaeffer spoke and wrote of, and, and, and to do so in understanding then ultimately what it means to, to share our faith and to lovingly attract others to us. Hey, there's a new concept. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the conversation. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, now, Craig, wait a minute now. Guys, let's let's be fair here. Uh, this is not going to work in American culture today. I mean, when you're talking about an environment in which there is so much hostility um, uh, towards Christianity, how can we ever hope to be successful at this? And yet, uh, Jim Ramsey, I have to point to what we see taking place with, let's say, the church in China today, where hostility, my goodness, exists not only institutionalized at the government level and local level, even by individuals in many villages and communities, where, let's face it, even even as we saw the spread of Christianity uh, here over the last 50, 60 years since the beginning of, of communism there, it's taken place without many of the so-called traditional trappings of, of um, Christianity in the West, meaning they don't have open evangelistic meetings, they don't do uh, Christian radio or television, you can't openly preach. Uh, there's many things that we see as sort of the necessary tools of sharing the gospel in the West that are completely absent in a place like communist China, and yet the church there is growing by leaps and bounds in one of the most hostile environments possible. That suggests to me that this idea of of growing the church as we share our faith in a hostile culture or a hostile environment is, is not only quite possible, but is happening today. Absolutely, and I think if you look historically, the church often has has been strongest when it's persecuted. Now, you know, I'm I'm certainly not someone who's eager to see that happen here, but you're right. History shows that. I mean, look at the early church, just the very beginning. I mean, the church starts with these this ragtag group of disciples, certainly in an extremely hostile environment. I mean, I've not seen too many Christians in America have been taken out to the uh, the Colosseum and and given to the animals, and yet and yet. 
the church grew rapidly during those first couple hundred years, and it was because people were living out their faith in community in a very hostile environment, and people took notice of that. And so, um, and that is, you're right, that's exactly what we see in China. I heard a Chinese believer one time uh, said this, I, I wish I could attribute the quote to the right person. He said, yes, in China we follow the Communist Party plan for, for church growth. <laughs> what the Communist Party plan for church growth? He said, yes. He says, we don't have seminary trained pastors. Um, we can't have more than 12 people meet together in, in a group. Um, and we can't depend on outside money. But the, uh, the Communist Party's plan for church growth. <laughs> and of course, and it's so been. Point being a little bit facetious, but that, that the church sometimes grows best when you have this very kind of tight knit community approach to church rather than the larger institutional approach to church. And, you know, we understand certainly the frustration. There are moments in time when we've all felt frustration with what we see taking place in our American culture today. And yet a hostile posture towards the culture is only going to be received by those in the culture as uh, Christians being hostile toward them. And it was always suggested, certainly as I've read uh, Scripture, that the best way to attract people, that they will know us by our love, that we can attract others to the love of God by showing first the love of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you, know, you started to say with the Bruce Jenner story, and I've not been following that closely. And, you know, it. I'll be quite honest, I have a hard time understanding that. But at the same time, my question is, should we expect Bruce Jenner to act like a believing evangelical Christian? And if not, then why should we be mad at him for making the choices he's made? Or, you know, are, are we mandated to love him where he is and then to understand what does that look like? And this obviously raises a lot of questions that I'm, I'm myself struggling to say, what is, how does that look in a lot of these really complicated situations? But I think some of the basic problem we run into is we expect our dominant culture to behave like believers when the fact is most of them are not believers. And so we need to lose that expectation and say, what does it look like for us to act like believers in that setting? We hear a lot of the phraseology about uh, culture wars, or at war with the culture, things of this sort. And, and of course, those, some of those militaristic terms, I know, from the non-believer perspective, uh, really intimidates people, and it, it sets up a very false idea of not only who we as the Church are, but quite frankly, who, who Christ is and, and what His character is. It runs very contrary into the image we see of Scripture. Now, again, I'm not saying that God is not about righteousness, Right. And holiness, I'm not suggesting that we need to somehow pull back from uh, taking a strong stand when it comes to being salt and light. But when we talk about engaging the culture uh, from a missional standpoint, uh, and, and based on your experience in doing this, you know, uh, on a full-time basis in a full-time and mission environment, when we talk about it from that viewpoint, Jim, uh, some closing thoughts just in terms of how you see we as the church ought to be engaging the culture and society around us as we can then be most effective in reaching others for Christ. Well, a couple of these I think are, are critical. One thing, we, we have got to regain the concept of community. We, we somehow replaced community with, with kind of church and Sunday school, which themselves are not bad things at all. Don't ever get me wrong on that. But that, that sitting in a sanctuary for an hour on Sunday and maybe even going to a, um, a Sunday school class that morning is not replacing community. So I think we have to discover community because that's what people are hungry for and are attracted to. So, so we need, first off, we need as believers to be living in community. Um, and then I think, secondly, understanding that, that discipleship is the model that Jesus and the disciples used to, to, to increase the Church. And so finding those relationships where we can naturally live life with people, 
talk about life issues with people. Um, I don't find people are not resistant to spiritual discussions. They're resistant to spiritual formulas <laughs> where we try to trivialize the, the hard issues of life. But when, we, when we're willing to engage with people in, in hard issues of life from our faith perspectives rather than trivializing them or having pat formulaic answers, um, I've not found that people are close to that. Uh, so I think those are those are a couple things I say right off. It's just let's just be more attractive. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think it's. I'm glad there's believers who are in politics. I'm glad there's believers who are, are out in the public square. And we should pray for them and encourage them. Uh, but but I think the the militaristic language is is not helpful. And uh, it like you said, it does. It, it kind of spooks people because their idea of religious people already is kind of intolerant. People who want to you know, restart the Spanish Inquisition. And so they're already thinking that, and we just kind of add yes to that understanding. It's, it's not helpful. Well, and it seems to me it's the easy way out. I mean, any of us can, can, can quote chapter and verse and engage in a good hefty round of biblical browbeating and, and, and beat somebody into submission, and we feel good about ourselves afterwards because, by golly, we told them. And that doesn't really require much of our heart, nor our life, nor our time. It's something entirely different to engage in biblical love, whereas you talked about your experiences in Kazakhstan really engaged in discipling relationships. Well, my goodness, now that really that really calls uh, me out to, to, to engage more, to invest more of my heart and my life. And as I do so, of course, you ultimately become very more effective in, 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 in introducing your Jesus to others. And so I, I guess it really is the difference between do we just want to take the easy way out and engage in biblical browbeating or really engage in biblical love? You can certainly put it that way, I think. Absolutely. Well, Jim, we appreciate the insights. It's, it's a brilliant article, and I think one that, uh, that really ought to cause all of us to pause and really take account of uh, what it means to live the missional life in America today in 2015. I'll point folks towards the website, uh, themissionsociety.org. That's themissionsociety.org, or maybe just do a Google search. You'll wind up finding it. The article is called Living Missionally in a Post-Christian Context. And our thanks to Jim Ramsey, Vice President, Mission Ministries for the Mission Society, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Any cursory view of the evening news or look at what's trending on Twitter or, for that matter, uh, gaining likes on Facebook tells you a lot about what's going on in our culture today. And, and so, too, I think, can the crime rate, divorce, marriage statistics, even church attendance, for that matter. It all points to a core shift in our society its values, and as a result, where we stand as individuals as much as a nation on many of today's so-called hot-button issues. You know the issues. Abortion, gay marriage, the environment, politics in the church, on and on the list goes. Perhaps today, unlike never before, one thing we can agree on, and that is there's very little agreement on many of these issues, either inside or, for that matter, outside of the church. Well, what kind of a position should we stand how should the church articulate where we stand? And sadly, today, oftentimes, the debate is not how to articulate where we stand, but whether or not we need to take a stand at all. Joining me, a man that needs no real introduction. He's pastored a church or two, written a book or two, 
even been on the radio once or twice. He's Chip Ingram, senior pastor of Venture Christian Church and uh, speaker on Living on the Edge. The new book, Culture Shock, a biblical response to today's most divisive issues. And Chip, always great to have you on the show. Craig, good to uh, talk to you personally and and great to be uh, on KFAX. Boy, isn't it scary what we see going on today? And, and, you know, that that old song, anything goes, so, you know, what's black today is white today, what's good today is bad today, and uh, anything goes, and that certainly seems to be the trend. Sadly, though, that mentality has has crept from the impact of the culture into impacting the church. And now, as I say, we, we don't debate how we should go about articulating the stand that we have on certain key issues, but rather we fight each other as to whether or not we even need to take a stand. Yeah, that's the thesis of this book. This book isn't about culture wars. It's not about blaming you know Hollywood or the educational system or the government. This book is really addressed to us inside the church who say we love Christ. We unashamedly believe the Bible's God's Word, that you know, we believe that uh, the second person of the Godhead uh, left heaven, was born of a virgin, uh, lived a perfect life, paid for our sins on the cross, died, rose again the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and gave us this amazing mission to declare to all the world that our sins have been forgiven by what he did at the cross. and. It's the gospel, it's the good news, and that inside of that, then, a new life always begets a, uh, a new life change. And so, you know, that's my concern, is that Christians don't live like Christians, and part of it is ignorance, and part of it is, you know, as I talk about in the book, uh, so much of those hot topics are really symptoms, and underneath, whether it's abortion or human sexuality or cohabitation, adultery, fornication, sexual morality... Uh, was rampant in the first century, and it was a strong challenge as believers came out of that lifestyle. And the same uh, with regard to their their challenges politically. I mean, Rome was the power. Caesar wasn't just the emperor; he was God. And to not worship him was to be an atheist. And and so, you know, I think we're just returning to a day where uh, Christianity is going to be a lot more like the first century. So, how do we winsomely, lovingly? declare the truth by what we say and by what we do, and I think we need to bring a lot more light than heat, and this talks about how do we do that inside the church first before we export it. And of course, one of the big challenges here, Chip, is the fact that it, 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 at the core is oftentimes not just a matter of how do we go about declaring the truth, but how do we go about arriving at what the truth is. Now, certainly from a, I'll, I'll say, a conservative um, um viewpoint from a Christian conservative viewpoint, we understand that, that God's Word is the ultimate and final arbiter of truth. But it's sad today because, you know, when I grew up uh, 150 years ago, uh, we knew that truth existed. We knew that there was an absolute truth, absolutely. And today we've gotten into this paradigm shift where now the debate is not what truth is, but that there is not just the truth, but a truth. There's your truth and my truth, and it's, it's all wrapped up in this so-called uh, moral relativism as today. Well, one of the things I do in the book, I had uh, the privilege in my journey of, um, I, I draw a, a little picture. I just came back from a book tour, did about, I literally got to take the pulse of evangelical Christianity from the north, Michigan, as far south as Fort Lauderdale, the middle, Dallas, Fort Worth, Atlanta, and west coast. And, um, you know, I wanted to get everything down to one picture, so I had this slide made of an iceberg, if people can imagine an iceberg, and above it, the iceberg of the symptoms, and the big symptom is sexual immorality, whether that's abortion or cohabitation or um, homosexuality, and then politics is uh, certainly alive 
issue and, and then uh, the whole environmental issues. And what I did is that's above, that's 10%, and those are the symptoms. And right underneath that, under the waterline, it really what you talked about, the real issue is, um, is, is what's true. And is it relative or is it absolute? And, uh, you know, I wrote my thesis at West Virginia University on the philosophical basis of teaching ethics. In other words, is there a right, is there a wrong? And uh, I do a little work there to help people see that in the last 50 years, plus or minus, think of this, in the last 50 years, the amazing rapid change in our culture, uh, we have literally turned upside down, I'm talking about inside the church, 4,000 years of biblical morality. So, I mean, in, in, the, in the decade of the 50s, uh, sexual immorality, even in the culture, was about uh, 2 to 4% girls and boys by their senior year of high school. It's 80 and 90% today. 30% of evangelical teens believe same-sex relationships are okay. These are in Bible-teaching churches, like, like where I'm at. And about 34 or 35% of uh, 18 to 29-year-olds in our churches, I'm not talking about you know, out there, um, are either cohabitating or having casual sex, and basically it's, you know, I don't feel like that command about sexual purity really applies to me. So the issue is really those are the symptoms, it's what's true, and that whole journey of existentialism that brought us to our current sort of pluralism, underneath that at the bottom of the iceberg is exactly what you hit on, it's scripture. Is it the final authority, or is it just culturally interpreted? I have to wonder, you know, some would, would, would then ponder, well, what's transpired here that down through the years, and particularly in this sort of fast track over the last um, couple of generations, what's happened to change our thinking? Then, of course, maybe the bigger, broader argument is, have we simply changed our thinking or ceased to think entirely? Well, I think what happens is our youth and, um, you know, remember... Remember when existentialism in the 60s, a lot of people listening were going, oh, yeah, if it feels good, do it. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Uh, I have my truth, you have yours. I'm okay, you're okay. Well, well, when that began to, you know, that, that turned into the sexual revolution of the 70s, the greed generation of the 80s, the me generation of the 90s, and then it got full-blown where after 30 to 40 years in academia, it went full-blown to where pluralism has gone from every opinion is okay to anyone who dares say, this is right and this is wrong, is intolerant. And I think we need to understand that um, pounding the table with people who understand and look at truth completely differently is a, is a no-win proposition. We're going to have to demonstrate the gospel in fresh ways. We're going to have to love people. One of the big movements in the Bay right now that I'm really excited about is churches coming together in radical ways. Like in, in my kind of 20-plus years of being around here, I've never seen the business community, churches, all come together around serving, caring, loving, and I, and I think that sort of builds the platform, and then we have to declare the truth and, and realize it's probably going to be unpopular. And we do have to do some um, platform rebuilding, don't we? Because as you point out in the book, and I quote you here, sexual immorality has become so acceptable even in the church that we've lost our moral distinctive and as a result our platform to share the good news. Well, I mean, it's just, it's the reality of you don't live any differently than me, and, and maybe why God put this so deep in my heart was that's why I rejected Christianity. You know, I grew mm. up in the church, I, I watched people live just absolutely uh, lives of duplicity, and it was, forget it, I don't believe any of it. But what, I, what, what gives me hope is I met, uh, you know, my 
heart was very, you know, into sports and, you know, went to school on a basketball scholarship. I got around some athletes who didn't push me. They lived the life. They gave me a New Testament, and they said, read this, ask God if he's really real, read it with an open mind. And they, their lives were the kind that I thought, hey, I, I want to be like them. I want to have relationships like them. They were authentic. They were transparent. When they blew it, they owned it. And they were good. I mean, they were the kind of people that they had excellence. And I think that's the kind of platform the early church had. I think that anytime you see God moving, that's the kind of platform in business and sports and education. I think that's what has to happen, Christians living like Christians in the church. And so this book, what, what, I, what I realize is most people, when these topics come up, are either silent. They don't say anything, either because they don't know what to say or they realize they're going to be criticized or they come out so strong and so angry that, you know, we shake our head and we realize, you know, we might agree with some of the content, but the way they're saying it, again, just um, removes any platform and basis because it's so unloving. Well, and, and when you take the charity out of this, then all of a sudden you, 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 you set up a combative situation Well, certainly people are immediately going to be not just on the defensive, they'll in fact move into an offensive position. And now you find yourself sort of uh, shrinking back and saying, well, okay, don't want to dare go there because I know what's going to happen. And, and therein lies then the loss that we lose of not just the platform, but the influence that we as the church should have. Uh, and not just to say, let's see what we can do to sprinkle some truth into culture, but in fact to lead the culture. It is the topic of a new book called Culture Shock, a biblical response to today's most divisive issues. We're going to take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Pastor Chip Ingram as this edition of Lifeline continues. 